Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 31. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the water, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in its according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and the morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. 
God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came in the morning, the sixth day, the word of the Lord. It's an incredible passage. Amazing. I have, um, this is family service, so I have for you kids, as I try to do every time uh, that you're in here for the message throughout, I have a Hebrew word for you, so stay tuned for that. I also have a show and tell that I think my, one of my kids can run up here and bring to me for later. They're going to make me run to them. So we're in a series. We're in a series um, on the book of Genesis. Thank you, my son. We're looking at the first 11 chapters in the Bible and in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. We might call this section the prologue, the prologue of the entire Bible. Without it, the rest of the Bible, it will really not make any sense to us. It won't be complete. Our understanding of life, our understanding of our own selves, our own personal stories will not be complete without this prologue here in Genesis 1 through 11. So you could think of this as our true origin story. Origin stories are you know, kind of a thing right now. We know that a person's story is incomplete without their origin story. So we get things like Obi-Wan, the series. Anybody like Obi-Wan, the series? Yeah. Or Boba Fett. Eh, uh, uh, okay. I love Boba Fett, the guy, but you know the movie. Anyway. Uh, Marvel characters have their origin stories like Spider-Man and Black Widow and all that, all the rest. Their story is incomplete without the beginnings, the origins. We're left wondering all kinds of things, right? Like, where did they come from, these characters? What, make them, what makes them who they are? And what's setting the trajectory for who they will be and what is to come for them? Uh, the great scholar that I respect um, a lot, his name is Leslie Newbegin. He said this, I have a quote from him, and I think this is very true. The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part? We all need to answer that in order to have understanding of our own lives and the story of the world that we're a part of. What is the real story of which our lives are a part, that we are each a character in? Is there a real story? Is it a good story? The Bible says, yes, there is a story, and yes, it is a good story, and to understand it, we have to start here at the beginning, the prologue. And many of you have heard this before, you've read it before, but the Bible also says that we need to return here to this prologue often. When things get confusing, when we feel off track, when we can't make sense of what's happening in our lives and in our stories, and we're struggling to understand what to do about the world's issues and problems and our own issues and problems. Thankfully, there aren't any real issues in the world today right now. I'm kidding. And in our lives, there always are. And there are some very significant issues happening in the world today. It's tongue-in-cheek. I know I'm saying that. It's nothing to laugh about. 
These are very, very important problems and issues. You look at the graphic that's at the, um, behind our PowerPoint or on the front of the, the bulletin. There's an open book. There's an unfinished story. And if you could, throughout this series, I would like for you to see that graphic as kind of an image that represents uh, that book right there as the story of the whole world. You could see it as the story of the universe and also the story of your own life there in that open book. And what I would like for us to do is to hear these chapters of Genesis 1 through 11 as the prologue to it all, the story of all things and the story of your life. So this is your origin story. Today, my title for the message is OG. Does anybody know what that might mean? Kids? You don't want to say it out loud, right? (laughs) Yeah, I guess it means, I think, probably in popular culture. We use it a lot. Original gangsta. Well, I'm not using it in that way. (laughs) But I'm going to explain how I'm going to use that throughout. We're going to start with the O there in the OG. The O is for origins. Genesis 1, 3 through 31, this passage is clearly telling us, just look at it here again with me, about the creation or the origin of everything. Light, the sky that we see, if we were to open that window, the seas and the oceans, land masses, the sun, the moon, the stars, plant life, sea life, birds, land animals, and finally humanity. Everything, everything in our human experience is here in Genesis 1, 3 through 31. And I know we're all here from kindergarten on up, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to think with me. We're going to think, we're going to think about some big ideas. So let's get ready to do this. The first thing we notice here about this passage, without even getting into the details and some of the questions we might have, I'll talk about that in a minute, is what the theologians call the creator and creature distinction. There we go. We're thinking about it. Creator and creature distinction or creator and creation distinction. This is the first truth in the story of the world and in our stories. All creation, all nature, the universe is from God, created by God, but is not God or divine. In this passage, there is a theme of the separation, the distinction. It's everywhere. You see separation of light and darkness, the expanse above and below, day and night, animals producing according to their kinds. There is distinction. There is separation. They're all created, except for one. And this is the most important distinction and separation in Genesis 1, the distinction and separation between God and then everything else. God has no origin. It blows our mind to think about that. God has no origin, but everything else finds its origin in Him as His creation. God said, right? That's what this says over and over again. God said, let there be light, and it was so. All things find their origin in the Word of God. Now, kids and and adults, maybe you've done this before. We said, I'm going to draw a line right here. If we're sharing a room or if we have our area to work in, this is the line. And that is your spot on this side of the line, and this is my spot on this side of the line. If you cross this line, what do we say? 
Well, we have some threats that we like to give about that. Do not cross this line or else. And I want, I want us all to see that that's what's happening here in Genesis 1. There is a line between the Creator and everything else. And when we cross that line, when we blur that line and that distinction, everything unravels. This is the first truth of our stories. Romans 1 says it like this. Paul is writing and thinking about this passage. And in light of the history and the story that proceeds here on out from the Scriptures, he says, we cross the line. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. Idolatry is at the root, this is saying, of how life unravels, of how the story unravels, of how our own stories unravel whenever we cross the line and make things, even good things that God created, into gods. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. Good goods make bad gods. There is so much goodness in this story of our origins. But any time we blur the distinction and take something that is not God and make it into our God, to make it our Lord, to make it central in our affections, to obey it as if it was God, life unravels from there. First point under origins. Now, when we talk about origins, we're going to shift our thinking here. There might be a little tiny question you have in light of this passage. What about... Science. What about this thing I've heard of called evolution? That's just a tiny little question. Okay, I'm joking. That's a big question with many, many pieces to it. And here I want to talk about it. I'm going to try to be brief but also helpful and also direct you to some resources. As a theory of the origin of the universe and humanity, and of life that offers an explanation of origins without God or that pushes God out of the picture, then the concept of evolution, according to that definition, is obviously incompatible with what the Bible teaches here. It's a scientific understanding or theory of how life on earth developed over time that leaves We'll say, God, the question of God open, or says science can't answer that. Well, that is a different matter. To answer the question of Genesis 1, is it compatible or incompatible with how science understands, how the modern scientific consensus understands evolution, or other ways that we try to reconcile science and Genesis 1, intelligent design, young earth, those kinds of things, To navigate all of that, we first have to answer the question with the correct reading of this passage. That might sound obvious, but with the Bible as our final authority. What is this passage saying about origins, and what is it not? There are a number of valid interpretations that hold to the absolute truth of Scripture that differ in how what we know of science fits and maybe doesn't quite fit. First... We have to ask the question then of genre 
or just to say, what are we reading here? And everybody take this out, look at it again. Kids, look at this. What are we reading here? Is it a newspaper? Is it a story or a narrative or history? That sounds closer. Is it a transcript or a report? Like somebody was sitting with a typewriter there as God was doing this and writing it all down? Not so much. Is it a poem? Is it a hymn? Is it a myth? All these things, all these ways are ways people have read this passage. And so let me ask you to put all these things aside for a moment. All the questions that maybe are going around in your head. And I try to do that when I come to this passage and all these debates and all the preconceptions we bring to this. And let the text of the Word of God speak to you afresh this morning. That's what I wanted to do in my own heart and mind this week. Here are some things to observe. Let's let this text tell us how to read it. There is a repetitive structure in Genesis 1. Did you see that? It's very clear as we just say, what is going on here? What is this? It is very poetic. You could say it's very hymn-like. Some have called it even a liturgy. There's a cadence to it. That's why it's called a liturgy. There was evening and morning. There was evening and morning repeated, repeated. There's a structure. God said, let there be, and there was. There is an assessment. God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning. Do you see? There's a structure. There's a flow to it. It's poetic. Also here, this is very important, there's a literary framework for this passage. Three plus three, and then one, the seventh day, which we haven't talked about. We'll talk about that in a separate message. If you look at verse 2, which is in your Bibles, we talked about it last week, that sets the stage for the creation. What happened when God the Holy Spirit was hovering over the formless and empty earth? The formless and empty earth. God created order out of what was formless. And then God filled what was empty. Look at this. In the first three days, God filled what was empty. And then in the second three days, I'm sorry, in the first three days, He formed what was formless. And in the second three days, He filled what was empty with life. So God formed light and darkness, the waters above and under, the seas and the land. Those are the first three days. Then the next three days, He filled those realms with the sun, the moon, and the stars, the creatures of the water and the sky, and then the creatures of the land. Do you see how those fit together in parallel? It's very beautiful. There's clear majesty in the way that this was put in together in writing. Would you say, anybody of your history book that you're reading, if you're in history class, that it's poetic, beautiful, and majestic? Has anybody read a history book like that? Maybe if you love history, but... Nobody said that, that, that that's true. And so there are clear signs of artistry, of literary artistry in this text. It's beautiful, it's poetic, it's majestic. But we can't overemphasize that and say, well, we're pushing out that this is history, that this is an account of what actually happened. Because it's not myth-like. It's not a myth, really, compared to the ancient myths, especially the ancient origin myths. What stands out, we talked about this last week, is that it's very unlike them. 
the ways that it is like them, it undermines each of them by showing that God alone is God. There's no pantheism, that God is one with the creation, or polytheism, that God has competitors. So it's not fiction. There are no beasts. There's no violence going on like we read about in the origin myths at this time. It's about things we experience. It's talking about the real world as we know it. So it accords with our experience. We say this is something that is real that happened in history. So it's not myth. But how does it fit with history? Maybe the basic definition of history is human beings reporting events that happen in our world based on human accounts, human artifacts, or human eyewitness account. Now just here you go. Think with me about this. There was no human there right until day seven. All this was happening before that. If we press reading this as history too much, it doesn't quite work. Imagine this. If there was a human there to record this and write it down, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he saw it and it was good. And the human is saying, okay, I got that. Let there be light. There is light. It is good. God, what's next? Just wait. Okay, how long? Well, 23 hours and 40 seconds now. And then you'll see what happens next. Okay. We just kind of process that and go, let's see. Maybe, maybe that's how it happened. Maybe that's what it's telling us it was all about. But there's something that maybe is not quite right about that. That it's a different class than simply history. All other narrative in the Bible, the stories of the Bible, people were there. They were recording events that they participated in or that others participated in, and they were inspired by the Holy Spirit in crafting those stories. So, if we read this specifically or strictly as scientific history, here's what I discovered um, seven or eight years ago as I was reading this again and coming to step back and go, what am I seeing here? What do I need to see here? We were doing a series on this at the previous church that I was a part of. And my job was to look at this text and engage in a dialogue with other scientists at our church about these questions. And what I noticed was this. One, one of these has been discussed for thousands of years. How can there be a literal day and evening, morning, morning and night as we know it without a sun? Maybe you've noticed that before. Well, it's not really evening and morning without a sun, but there's light there, but there's no sun there. So there's light without the sources of light. Of course, God can do all this, but we're just wondering, what is this text trying to tell us that God did? The sun is not, as it's described, in the sky. The sky is the Earth's Earth's atmosphere here. It's obviously, we know, beyond the sky, way out there in space. And we could say, that's not true. It's not scientific. The sun is not, like, you know, stuck in the sky like a picture. But to us, it appears to be in the sky. We see that vegetation grew without the sun. Okay? Not normally how vegetation grows, but I'm just going to notice that. And then we see on the seventh day when God rested, which we didn't read in this passage, we just wonder is what's being communicated is that God rested for a 24-hour period. Is that what we're meant to take away from this? Sharing all those things, here's what I want to provide you as a takeaway. This is how I think we should take take away this conclusion. We can't overemphasize or press this narrative into a literal, completely chronological account and push out all the poetic elements either because you're going to have to make adjustments somehow and explain some things. It's a day, but it's not the kind of day we know. 
It's God speaking, but He's not speaking with the lips that we have. It's the sun in the sky, but not the way that we, we see it. We understand it's in space. You have to make those adjustments. And so here's the point. It opens up different viewpoints on time, sequence, and method. There's a different ways to understand that. How long? What was the sequence? How did God do this according to what we can observe in science? This is not intended clearly to be read as modern-day science. That didn't exist. It doesn't answer or address all those questions. But it's not just as poetry, not just as history. It's meant to be read as a doxological poetic narrative. And you're like, wow, what is that? That's a fancy word. And what I, what I believe and others have said is that Genesis 1, 1 through 31, belongs to its own unique genre. And maybe we should expect it to be because it's about the origin of all things and God trying to communicate to us what He wants to tell us about that. This is not about how God did it. He's not reporting. Here, let me tell you all the steps that I took to create the entire universe. This is about who created all things, about what He created, everything, and why. For His praise, honor, and glory. There are questions science can't answer. Genesis 1 answers those questions. At the same time, it allows and encourages science because it tells us about the stability and the goodness of the natural order. It encourages us to have curious exploration about this world that God made, that we are exploring something fashioned and created and wonderful. So science is good, but science has its limits. So there are different views of how all this works, including a creationist, evolutionist approach, a young earth approach, some people hold to that, a day-age approach where all these days represent ages or intelligent design. We can't go into all that. I've already done probably too much for today. You can hold to the truth of the Bible, its authority, and you can hold I believe, to each of those views. Okay. That's the O for origin. If you would like, what did I do with my show and tell? If you would like to investigate this further, Origins, this is for me, the most helpful book by Deborah Harzma and Lauren Harzma from Calvin College. I think this provides a great overview of the issues involved. So we have to talk about that because I know that's uh, on our mind, but that's taking us a little bit away from the focus of this text. OG, are we ready for what that really means? It means original goodness in the way that I'm using it. One of the clearest features of this story of our origins and the origins of everything is that as God is creating, He repeatedly steps back and He looks at it and He sees it and He says, it is good. It is good. And then it ends by him saying, it is very good indeed. Verse 31. This is so important. The Hebrew word for good. Are we ready, everyone? Tov. Did I say it right? It's not hard to say. Tov. Say it with me. Tov. There we go. (laughs) Love it. It's a word that has... A really broad range of meanings. It can mean beautiful, useful, fitting, 
valuable and morally good as opposed to bad. Uh, One theologian and commentator said, creation, in, in light of God saying it's good, it's good, it's good, creation, this means, is imbued with God's goodness. And I'm going to try to pronounce a French phrase. I hate speaking French because it's so hard. Joie de vivre, which means exuberant enjoyment of life as God is creating. There's exuberant joy in all that He's made as He sees it. There's all kinds of implications here. One is that this means there's nothing in the Bible that would lead us to believe that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. That is not a Christian or a biblical idea. It is, in fact, anti-everything that this story is telling us. We are not spiritual beings imprisoned in a physical uh, prison, all those kinds of things. It is all good, created by a good God. And secondly, if we lose sight of this, if we don't hold to the original goodness of everything God made, it will lead us into all kinds of issues and problems. I'd like to talk about that a little bit. We already read this passage from our uh, prayer of confession time, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Look at what Timothy says. Um, This is the Apostle Paul writing his letter to Timothy. He's obviously thinking of this passage. Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God in prayer. What is made good? Everything. Is not was created good. This is after the fall, the sin, and the corruption and the curse introduced by all those things. But Paul says everything is good. The original goodness is not totally lost, and nothing is to be rejected but received with thanksgiving, and it's set apart. How do we know how to do that? We set it apart by God's Word, by His authority, by how He tells us to enjoy these things, and by prayer. It's all one with our relationship with God. We receive His good gifts from Him as gifts received from the great giver who made us. So Christianity is about learning to receive that which is created good as it was meant to be, how it was meant to be in Genesis 1. It's not here on the screen, but Paul is saying right before this, in this passage, that teaching that says otherwise, that contradicts this, he calls it the doctrine of demons and the teaching of deceitful spirits. And the examples he gives is people who forbid marriage or eating certain foods. People who don't teach everything God created is good. He says this is demonic teaching. This is deceitful teaching. Because that is where the story begins here in Genesis 1. Sometimes some of us, here's where I think this is important, we can be as Christians too quick to rush to Genesis 3, which is there, it's going to happen, into original sin. Where does that come from? And the curse and the brokenness that we all experience and have. And we can sometimes start the story, the story of our world, the story of our lives with original sin. And the way that God thinks about us, first we think He thinks about us starting with sin as bad sinners. But the Bible doesn't start that way, and if we get off track, we end up as Paul says, with the doctrine of demons. I know that's a a weird way to to describe it. It's like, what does that mean? Well, demons, 
the evil realm, the evil spiritual realm, its main purpose is to dehumanize us and separate us from God and His good purposes, to distort God and His goodness. And Paul says that is what happens if we get off track. Yes, there is original sin. There is a fall into sin. It affects every part of us and what God intended for good. It disorders, it disrupts, and corrupts everything. We have fallen into sin. It affects every single part of God's good creation. Creation itself actually groans because of this. We are in a state of sin and misery or brokenness because of that. But let's not go there yet. We'll get there in a few weeks. For today, we need to remember that God still delights in His good creation. And one of the best places that shows us this is Psalm 104. I have some pictures I want to show you. Psalm 104 says, God established the earth on its foundations, and it will never be shaken. Let's look at a picture of that earth. The psalmist says, may the Lord rejoice in all that He has made, His earth. In the psalm, it says, God makes sure the wild donkeys quench their thirst. The wild donkey, God cares about the wild donkey drinking? Well, He delights in doing that. He enjoys the songs of the birds and the trees, it says in verse 4. In verse 17, it says the storks and the pine trees. He's thinking about them. He's making sure they're fed. And then the goats. I think we have the goats. Sorry about the stork. I don't have that picture. We have the goat. He enjoys feeding the goats in the high mountains and the rocky cliffs for the hyraxes. What is a hyrax? Let's look at it. There it is. He's very cute. You're like, of course God loves that cute little guy. Who wouldn't? But this is in the Bible. Why is this in the Bible? Why are we worshiping and praising God and saying, Lord, delight in this, take joy in this? It's because there is goodness in creation. And even in the same psalm, let's go to the next slide. Yep, it says he made wine to make human hearts glad. And everybody said amen. (laughs) May the Lord rejoice in all His works. I will rejoice in the Lord. Can we know God at all unless we know His joy and that He looks at these things and says, this is good, this is very good, all of it, what He made. How could it be any other way? There is an original goodness, and I want to tell you, this applies to us, this applies to you, though, yes, there is original sin. We are born separated from God. And all of us affected by that. But we have not wholly lost our original goodness as people made in the image of God. Every human being, this means you are valuable. You are crowned with glory and honor. That is what Psalm 8 says. You are worthy and you are made and you are designed for good. A far more incredible good than you could ever imagine. That is who you are. That's where your story begins. You are an OG. You were created originally good. In a few weeks, you maybe will do this. You'll get to turn to each other and say, you're a sinner. <laughs> but this morning, we're, gonna, we're not going to do that yet. That's not where the story begins. You can, stir, you can turn to your neighbor instead right now and say, you are an OG. Let's do it. Go ahead. You are an OG. There we go. You are originally good. C, 
Sin comes in, but that is not God's design. That's not what comes first. That's not where the story begins. When our kids stand up here, I realize this with kids, how important this was about 12, 15 years ago when I called kids to stand forward and profess their faith in the gospel through a profession of faith class, confirmation class. We did that a little while ago. And I realized that in our membership vows, after we had taught the kids, and, and Chris did this when he was teaching our kids, and I do this every time I teach kids the story of the Bible, I say, kids, you better understand this. This is so important. You were created in the image of God. God created all things good. And then things fell into ruin, and it's bad. But Jesus came to redeem us from the ruin, and He is going to recreate all things. And we went back through that story all the time with the kids. And then when they stood up here, I realized that in the questions that I asked them, we said at the very beginning this, do you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope? And that's a very important question. But I felt like we needed to add a question before that, which is, do you believe that you are made in the image of God, made to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever? We have to make sure we start where the story begins. This doesn't ignore watered-down sin and all its terrible effects. It shows sin and evil for what it is. It's not original. It's not first. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I have one more OG for you. Third point, overcoming goodness. Overcoming here is an adjective, not a verb. And what I mean by that is, how do we know that goodness will overcome evil? It's actually here in Genesis 1. I have a little, um, this little thing on my computer screen that appeared. I didn't ask for it to appear. I have a PC. And in the bottom right of my computer screen, there's this little image that keeps popping up. And it's always telling me terrible things about the world. I don't know if you have it. There's like, there's a fire thing. It's like, there is a wildfire. The world is on fire. And then when that's not there, there's like this little heat thermometer. And it says like, there is a heat wave. And then this week, it had this little down arrow, red down arrow, like NASDAQ is down. <laughs> and then it told me Dow Jones is down. And this was like on Thursday when I was preparing this sermon. I was like, I need to get this thing off my computer. There is so much bad news. I don't need to know about that. And so each one of us in our hearts, we know there is bad news, but all, all of us also say, is that it? Is that all there will ever be will goodness overcome evil in the end. The Bible says yes. Will goodness overcome evil in your story? The Bible says yes to all who trust in Jesus Christ. It is anticipated here. Here, this is how. Will the God who said, let there be light, and there was light, let the darkness overcome the light? Will the God's who said, I see everything, and it is good, it is very good. Will he let that which is bad and evil and wrong overcome everything he made very good? If we only had Genesis 1, the only chapter in the whole Bible, what would your answer to that question be? Would you say, well, he's just going to let it be. Too bad, it all went, it went bad. It's just going to let it ruin. This is the God who made it all. He made it good. And so our hearts are already building with anticipation to ask, what is he going to do when wrong, evil, 
enters into the story. John 1 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone has come into the world. Just from Genesis 1, we know how the story will end. And in Jesus Christ, we see that it is in fact so. That this God entered into his creation himself, into the story of what was good that has been assaulted by evil and sin, to do the greatest good of all, the unthinkably good, the unimaginably good, where he says, what I have made good, very good, my delight, my joy through sin, through trying to reject and replace me, you've ruined it. You've ruined yourselves. You've plunged into darkness and evil. You deserve the bad you have chosen, the death you have chosen, but I won't let you get what you deserve. I will take it on myself so that you can have and you can be what I designed you to be. I will make a way to destroy and overcome the bad and evil and sin and the curse and death without destroying what I have made good, which includes us, the very crown of his creation. This summer, um, I started a new hobby or tried to learn a new skill. I was refinishing wooden furniture. I'm not making it. I don't know how to cut wood and put it together, but I'm just trying to learn how to refinish wood. And uh, it's a lot of work if you've ever done it, way more work than I ever thought. There's a lot of sanding, and there's a lot of sanding, and there's a lot of sanding, and then there's staining and finishing and all those steps. So this is theoretical. It hasn't happened in our house, so don't worry about that. But if someone in our house one of my family members, other beloved family members, like caused a big gash or scrape on the table that I just spent hours upon hours upon hours crafting and creating and making. Who would have the most passion to restore the goodness of that table? Who in our house would need to fix it and mend it and restore it? It would be me. Would I be a little bit upset? Of course. That's actually what the Bible calls the wrath of God. (laughs) You have taken what is good, and look what you've made of it. I'm not going to trash my table, though. I'm not going to let it go. I've spent so much of my time working on this table. It's good. I'm going to restore it. Friends, that is the story we are in. As we already read, this is the beginning of the Bible. This is the end, the end which actually is really the new beginning. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The one seated on the throne says, look, I am making everything new. I'm not making all new things. I'm making everything new. That which he made very good, he will make new and even better. When we're struggling to hold on to hope, friends, let's look to Jesus. He is the one who has promised Goodness will win in the end. There is an overcoming goodness as the very heart of God, and we can trust Him. 
We can trust him with our stories. Let's pray together and let's ask him to give us that hope. Lord Jesus, thank you. You are the word who was at the beginning. By you, through you, and for you, all things were made. And we thank you for giving us this glimpse into the incredible mystery and story of how all things began so good, so beautifully, with such wonder. And I pray this morning that you would meet us with fresh hope and perspective exactly where we need to hear it. That our hope would be placed in the right place. That it is not up to us to overcome evil with good. That that is a task beyond our abilities and power and strength. But it is the task that you have undertaken for us. And it is the task that you will carry to completion for us and for your great glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the goodness with which you have made us and the goodness with which we have to look forward to in our stories and in the story of all things. As we come to your table in a moment, I pray you would meet us, strengthen our faith, help us see the things we don't see, and lift up our eyes so that we might have fresh hope again. In Christ's name we pray, amen.